You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Well, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Barbara Natterson Horowitz, who is a professor at UCLA and also visiting at Harvard. And you're both in the medical school, also in the evolutionary biology department, and used to be a practicing cardiologist, and maybe will once again become a practicing clinical cardiologist, and also the author, co-author of these two books. The most recent book is called Wildhood, The Astounding Connections Between Humans and Animal Adolescence. And this grew out of, I think, the last chapter of the previous book, which is called Zubiquity, What Animals Can Teach Us About Health and the Science of Healing. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, look, this is a project that is right up my alley, because as you point out in the beginning of Zubiquity, there's this divide in the world of medicine between veterinarians and doctors, right? And I think you you quote a joke, which is like a physician is a veterinarian that only treats one species. And I remember this divide, you see this in other areas. And I know a lot of my podcasts have been about what makes humans unique as animals, but you know, there are a lot of things that don't make us unique and there's a lot of commonalities, but it seems like at least within the world of both academic research and in the area of practical professions like medicine, there is this divide and there's a lack of communication. And I saw this when I remember attending these animal behavior society conferences and announcing that I was an economist and people were wondering like, well, what are you doing here? (laughs) And I was like, well, last time I checked, people were animals. And so maybe start off by talking about in the world of medicine, when did this happen, this split between kind of treating humans and treating other animals? Yeah. So first, I just want to say I was intrigued by the invitation to come on this podcast. And I went through and kind of clicked around and thought, yeah, this has been sort of a central issue slash problem slash maddening challenge. And who knew that there was a community of other people who were traversing disciplines because it's so fascinating and there's so much you can learn. And yet it's just full of a lot of headwind, let's say. So I basically, just to kind of give you a tiny bit of history and then focus on your question. Yeah, I was uh, kind of at the mainstream of a very traditional profession. So for the first about 15 years of my career, I was uh, an academic physician, a professor of medicine, a cardiologist at UCLA. And so in that capacity, just taking care of human beings with heart attacks and high cholesterol and teaching a lot of medical students and, and all that, and that was great. And then about 15 years ago, zoos started reaching out to ask if I would participate in the cardiovascular care of some of their patients. And it was at these zoos that I first encountered what I had thought of as human diseases, like heart failure or breast cancer or even psychiatric diseases in gorillas, in lions, in polar bears. And what struck me about that really was for all that I did know, at that point I was already a full professor of medicine, how ignorant I really was about veterinary medicine and veterinarians themselves. So that led me on a real journey to kind of follow a North Star type of question, which is how could, or could, and if so, how, 
insights from the world of veterinary medicine and then evolutionary biology, another discipline. How could those make me a better clinician? So in taking care of patients, a better teacher, better professor, and also a better researcher. And that's guided my life. What I discovered when I started to sort of dip my toe into the world of veterinary medicine and go to veterinary medicine conferences and um, read their journals and is that the cultures of human medicine and veterinary medicine were very different. The cultures were different. And really, although the medicine itself, the science itself, the biology itself was unbelievably similar, not surprisingly, because obviously we are animals, there was this sort of a firewall or a real barrier between the fields. So when you see something like that and you think, well, these are really smart people, right? The physicians are really smart. The veterinarians are really smart. Everybody understands that there's a shared continuity of species and biology. So why is there this blockade? And there are a lot of answers to that question. And we can talk about some of the reasons behind that, which I think are interesting. But one of the first things that I noticed was that physicians tended to, with exceptions, consider themselves to be better, more knowledgeable, somehow better trained than veterinarians. And although I didn't spot it 15 years ago, what I now believe was happening was a kind of unconscious parallel in how we humans sometimes see ourselves as better than, more exceptional, more uniquely unique than other species. And the history of it simply, there, there are many different reasons why veterinary and human medical training are separate. But in the U.S., one of the reasons is that vet schools were often in rural areas as part of the land grant, whereas most medical schools were in, you know, densely populated urban centers. Well, it seems like, the, yeah, there's definitely a status hierarchy because the veterinarians reached out to you, right? So they presumably believe that human vets right, have, have something to teach them. And it wasn't that the doctors sort of reaching out to the vets looking for insight, right? Well, yeah, no, I mean, it was really interesting. So let's go back 15 years and then we can talk about the difference between then and now because I do think there are changes. By the way, there's a general sort of decentering of Homo sapiens from the sort of the, like the landscape of species, which is positive. But 15 years ago, what you would find is that, like, I'm a cardiologist, so I'd go to the American College of Cardiology meeting, right? And mostly it's MDs, but there would be occasionally a veterinarian because they are cardiologists and they were coming to the human meeting. And Vets rely on the human literature because there's so much more of it. And they kind of say, well, yes, I'm dealing with a horse's cardiac issue, but it's a mammal. And so they kind of, they use what they can and they have to be very flexible. But when I started going to veterinary conferences, I was almost always in the beginning the only physician of any of these conferences. That's one thing. And then if you look at the literature, like you can find, you know, I recently have a paper where I'm looking at heart failure across vertebrates in fish, in reptiles, you know, birds and mammals. And even though many forms of so-called human heart failure occur in every one of those species, less than 0.01% of the literature comes from the veterinary world. So there are these gaps. Some of it is just historical. Some of it is human exceptionalism, you know, this idea that we are better or more unique. And, and you'd be surprised that people who think of themselves as evolutionists and scientifically minded, that you can still find blind spots of human exceptionalism, sort of these unexamined assumptions that something is uniquely unique. So anyway, that's basically the landscape then, and it's maybe changing now. Well, I think I can understand why there might be this difference in areas of medicine that 
involve cognition, right? So for instance, psychology, but it's less easy to understand when we're dealing with things like cancer. I mean, on the behavioral front, I just saw one of these articles in my newsfeed about why people are closer to their relations on the mother's side than the father's side, right? And so I was like, oh, this looks interesting. So I clicked on it. And of course, it all had to do with these explanations where, well, you know, when they're growing up, they spend more time and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if you approach it from a biological perspective, you're like, well, of course, right? I mean, relationship certainty, you know, but there was at no point in this entire article, which was in a reputable publication, did they mention anything that would also apply to other species. So how do we explain this when we're dealing with things like, I mean, set aside behavior for a second, we'll get that with adolescence, but with things like cancer, for instance, or heart disease, that it's difficult to explain, you know, why we wouldn't view this as a unified area of research. Yeah. And I think most physicians, once they're exposed to this, they kind of instantly get it. And they often are a little bit amused by some of the way I was by their ignorance. And I remember in the early days when I'd come back from the zoo and I would talk to colleagues about there was a case of metastatic breast cancer in a lion or there was concern about it. And talking about metastatic breast cancer in a lion, colleagues of mine would sort of giggle. They would laugh, which was bizarre, right? It was in a way, but I think it was that disruption of the human exceptionalism because breast cancer seems so human. It, it was something like that. I think it's just that culturally, in human medicine, I mean, in my entire medical education, I definitely did not hear anything about any of these diseases in other species. Now, of course, there are a handful of modern organisms that we use in laboratory. I mean, mice and zebrafish and everyone is definitely super familiar with those. But I'm talking about the other 160 plus million metazoan animal species with extant animal species with whom we currently share. That's a huge blind spot. But Greg, I'm going to quibble with you a little bit about your comment about behavior and just to be provocative, but also because I think there's an opportunity. But maybe we'll get back to that. And I just want to say, yes, I agree with you when it comes to cancer and heart disease. It's actually pretty easy for a physician once they're exposed to it to say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like there's a kind of heart problem where the septum between, got the right ventricle and the left ventricle, and then there's a muscle in between. The septum can be too thick and that can cause fainting and even sometimes sudden death. You sometimes see it in athletes, but that happens in other animals as well. And so when I presented and had conferences where we have a veterinary cardiologist and human cardiologist talking about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's no problem at all. The physicians are interested and then they're very respectful because as soon as you hear a veterinary cardiologist presenting and showing the same imaging and using very similar medications, a human cardiologist recognizes that's their colleagues, their peers. And that's easy. It's the ignorance that creates the sort of gap. But here's the thing that I think many physicians don't recognize, but which I'm super focused on, which is there are low-hanging fruit, there are insights about very common problems in, let's use cardiology, that if you just know more about animal physiology and wild animals, it changes your perspective. You've probably heard of someone fainting when they have their blood taken. I don't know if you've ever had anything like that or an injection. No. I mean, I've, I've heard of it. I read your book on it, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, it's never happened to me. Yeah, it's pretty common. And I remember teaching medical students what I've been taught, which is, oh, it's a paradoxical phenomenon, like paradoxical, which is already like a strange thing. And what it basically means is we just don't have a clue, right? It doesn't make sense. 
And the reason it doesn't make sense is you expect with fear for there to be fight, flight, and the heart to increase in, in its rate. And instead, what happens is the heart rate plummets, and then there's not enough blood going to the brain, and they faint. Okay, so that's called vasovagal syncope, but it's fainting, it's fear fainting. Yeah, I can never say, I, I don't think I can ever say fight or flight anymore. I have to say fight, flight, or fainting. My gosh, absolutely, absolutely. When I used to teach medical students, oh, it's paradoxical. We don't really understand why. Okay, so the beautiful thing about traversing, moving from the very sort of human-centered field of medicine and moving into veterinary medicine, and then once you're looking at other animals and the same physiology, and that takes you to the common ancestor. And now you're having a conversation about evolutionary biology, right? So you're traversing that discipline as well. So what I started to do is I started to make a list of other species where there was evidence that sometimes with fear, their heart rates would plummet and they would basically go limp. And found, to my surprise, and Catherine Bowers and I were writing the book together, we were doing this research together, that if any mammals from elk and antelope to koalas and hyenas, birds, many species of birds, even reptiles and fish. Yes, fish. So we're talking about an animal with whom we have a common ancestor over 400 million years ago, that sometimes when they are in a very, like a pre-predation situation, their heart rates plummet and they lose muscle tone. Okay. So now, I built a model, right, to show the relation, this phylogeny, like a big family tree, and just stared at it and thought, okay, what is this teaching me? What is this telling me? It's telling me something. And it's something that I didn't learn in medical school, and I haven't been teaching my med students. And make a long story short, when you start to watch videos of, you can see wildlife doing this in some cases, you see that what it does is it makes them still. It's a way of hiding that stillness is actually across vertebrates. Stillness is an anti-predation strategy. It's physiologic, right? It's not a conscious thing. It's physiologic, and it prevents the rustling of the brush, the bushes, the sound, the wafting of the odor, and it's effective in many instances, and I have lots of videos showing animals escaping predation through this immobility. So that's already a pretty interesting insight. It says, okay, so it may not make sense to us, to our 200,000-year-old species, but the physiology is highly conserved when you look at other vertebrate, the same physiology, and you can clearly see that it has adaptive survival benefit in other animals. Hey, maybe the reason we have this physiology that seems paradoxical is that it's retained physiology, no longer beneficial to us, but hasn't been selected against. And the other interesting piece is that if you look at the mean age that this starts in humans, it's young. It's like 13, 12, 13 years old. And in animals where they've looked at this, it's typically a reflex of the young. So it's almost as though until you're old enough and big enough to flee successfully, maybe this is an adaptive strategy. So that's the kind of insight that I don't think most physicians, I mean, I just, it wasn't on my radar at all. But once you start to think that way, it really opens your eyes and it's exciting and it's fun. Yeah, sometimes it's just a terminological difference that gets in the way, right? So when we see animals do this, we call it playing dead, right? But we would never say, oh yeah, I was in the doctor's office and he injected me, so I played dead, right? <laughs> like, you, you know, but that's effectively kind of what it is, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's funny because 
as you said that, then we get into the whole fear of anthropomorphizing, which yeah. is a big muddled mess, which could use some clear thinking. And thanks to Franz de Waal, I think a lot of people are thinking more clearly, not just Franz. Mark Beckoff, a lot of people have been very, very articulate and clear about that. But yeah, the playing dead is a projection, right? But actually, it's kind of describing it accurately in them and in us. Well, so I've done a podcast before on evolutionary medicine. And I think there's two kind of research approaches that you can use. One is to kind of take this functional approach. So when you see something, you say, okay, well, what could possibly be the function? But the other is, is this one where you do sort of, you know, lateral observation, right? Where you're just sort of saying, okay, well, we see this in other animals. And then that kind of allows us to remove the blinkers and we don't have to engage in this sort of imaginative exercise around humans. So is this looking at animals primarily a way of just decentering? You use this term, you analogize to biomimicry, right? So in engineering, we have this idea where if we kind of look at animals and how they solve problems, this will enable us to engineer solutions for humans. So looking at animals, does that serve the purpose of stripping away the baggage that we have associated with the subjective human experience? Yeah, so great question. And let me um, answer it in two ways. Let me start with an example of mental illness. So mental illness continues to be stigmatized, very stigmatized. And in the U.S., you could argue that it's less stigmatized than in some other parts of the world, but it's plenty stigmatized. And this is going back to your comment earlier that well, maybe we can understand it around behavior, you know, the anthropocentrism, but cancer, heart disease. Okay. So I'm going to partly agree with you, but I'm going to kind of explain why I'm not sure I completely agree. So mental illness is highly stigmatized. One of the exercises that I do with students is I look at one of the most stigmatized forms of mental illness, which is courting. And I think it's the stigma of hoarding, I think, has been amplified by a hideous television show that every one of my students has seen. And it may not just be one series, but, it, you know, it's this hoarding or whatever they call it. They pretend to be therapeutic. You know, there's a so-called psychotherapist there, but it's basically, in my view, exhibitionism, P.T. Barnum, at the expense of these people. But having said that, when you see it, it's a lot to look at. And they choose the worst cases you can imagine. Okay, so what I do is I look at hoarding, and I have students do two things. One is we look at what we know about the behavioral genomics of hoarding in humans, and there's a fair amount that we know. We look at sort of the neurophysiologic component of hoarding. We really kind of do a reductive deep dive into human hoarding. And then we move over, and I start this module by showing them a picture of or video from this television show. And then I show a video, several videos I have of a dog, for example, or a cat, and you see the owners. It's just something I stripped from YouTube, and they're following the dog around through the house, and then the dog climbs under the bed, and the owner licks the dust ruffle, and there's just all of these blue-colored toys, and the dog's face is like that, and everyone bursts yeah. out like, oh. Have you seen the one about the squirrel that filled the entire inside of a car with acorns? <laughs> right? That's another good one. Well, just send that to me. Yeah. I have not seen it. And then I show the animal one second, I show the human one first, and there's revulsion. I mean, again, the way that it's shot and the way that it's edited is intended to elicit that, I think. So the students have that experience, and then they have the, oh, and then we go and we look and we do the same dive that we've done neurobiologically into the human hoarding, and we do it for the animal side. And what do we find? 
it varies, but let's say that if you look at the protein coding genes alone, and I know that's only part of the story, but if you just look at that for hoarding in like four or five different mammalian species that we're looking at, we're talking about over 85% conservation. And when you're looking phenomenologically at the behavior, the triggers, so all of a sudden, there are two consequences of that. Number one, students are challenged to kind of wonder about the difference of the reaction. But two, all of a sudden, somebody is not there. You're not anthropomorphizing if you say that the animal is hoarding, okay, because the biology is so similar. And then the other piece of it is if we understand what the wild origins of hoarding are, and caching and hoarding are incredibly common across species as a hedge against starvation. I mean, it's just a very smart thing to do. And the neurobiology is highly conserved with some components of human hoarding. So all of a sudden, I think there's an opportunity to, number one, understand the science better, the ecological context in which hoarding may occur. And by the way, what environmental ecological factors could trigger it in vulnerable humans? But even beyond that, to begin to recognize that we've got biodiversity. Well, part of biodiversity is physiologic diversity, and part of physiologic diversity is neurophysiologic diversity. And neurophysiologic diversity shapes behavior. So there's this continuity that I really don't think most psychotherapists and psychiatrists are sufficiently aware of. Yes, I teach this course called Behavioral Finance. And whenever we walk through all of these heuristics and biases that are seen as dysfunctional, right? The first question I always ask is, well, do we see it in animals, right? And if we see it in animals, then maybe it's not dysfunctional, right? Maybe it's a mismatch of some kind. So you're describing, okay, there's a distribution of traits and attributes, and you're always going to find folks at the extreme. But when you look at things like hoarding, or you look at things like cutting, which you also looked at, and addiction, and a whole bunch of other things, to what extent are these a result of a mismatch, right? So when we see obese pets, right? Presumably that's a product of mismatch, right? When we see animals that are engaging in destructive behavior, oftentimes they're animals in captivity, right? And so they're in an unusual environment. So to what extent should we then use that insight to maybe treat these ailments or change the environment in which we find ourselves? Yeah, so that's, that's such a good question. And mismatch plays a role in, I think, a lot of... I mean, I think the concept of evolutionary mismatch is one that every medical student should kind of have at the ready. And Randy Nessie, I know he was a guest on your show, and uh, Dan Lieberman and others who are colleagues and friends, yeah, they've done a great job, in, among others, in kind of promoting that. So let me just start with the question of mismatch and obesity. It's one of the classic examples. We say, we know that humans are becoming more and more overweight and obese. And what are the reasons? And there are many reasons. But one of the frameworks for understanding overeating, let's say, and metabolic syndrome is that we, and by we, I mean not necessarily just humans or hominids, but I'm saying animals. Our animal ancestors evolved in environments where calories are scarce. And that there are sometimes when they might not be scarce, but in general, the risk of starvation is a clear and present danger. When you look at what is most likely to kill wild animals. And there is some debate about what is the greatest danger, and it probably varies. But starvation and predation and infection are definitely high up there, and the three interact. So starvation is a clear and present danger to survival. So our animal ancestors evolved. So the phenotypes that were shaped by the selective pressure of scarce calories is a metabolism that is going to do what it can to 
retain, make maximal use of whatever energy is available. Okay. And then you all of a sudden have that metabolism put into a world of abundance, which is what we have. And that's the so-called obesogenic environment. And that's a mismatch between the metabolism that's been shaped by scarcity and plunked into an environment of just tons and tons of food. What's interesting also about an evolutionary perspective for obesity and overweight, and there are many of them, but one of them is that wild animals, so there are two ways for selection to happen, to create a phenotype, the type of an organism, an animal that's going to have a, the best chance of surviving and reproducing. One is through natural selection. So we're talking about selecting for metabolism you know, over hundreds of millions of years. But even in a single generation, you can see that fetuses who are, we know from famines, for example, sort of in the final years of, the, of World War II in Holland, right? In Northwestern Holland, when the Nazis blockaded it and there was a famine for several months, we know that the fetuses who were in the first and second trimester, 18 years later, those fetuses had a higher chance of having metabolic syndrome and obesity. Why? Because there is this biology, an evolutionarily shaped biology, right? That's not unique to humans that exist in our animal ancestors that allows for whatever's happening in the environment to be transmitted through the epigenome to direct the genes of the developing fetus to dial up or dial down so that that animal, when it enters the world, has sort of advanced information and that its phenotype is better optimized to survive that presumably calorically scarce environment. But of course, we know that in the case of the Dutch hunger winter, there was the liberation, and all of a sudden you had these starved fetuses, essentially, in an environment with plenty. So that evolutionary perspective and recognizing that even that piece of epigenetic biology, that evolved in our animal ancestors as a secondary hedge against starvation and to promote survival. Now, of course, your second book on adolescence, of course, it's primarily about other species. But throughout the book, you make allusions to insights that we could potentially leverage while raising our own children, right? And so I almost got the sense that you were a psychiatrist as I was, you know, reading through this book because there were so many insights about kind of human psychology and behavior, particularly in adolescence. And some of those insights also related to mismatch. So with respect to adolescence, when did adolescence become viewed as a separate stage of development? And why did you pick this term wildhood rather than adolescence? Yeah. So first of all, um, it's funny that the reason I smiled when you said it's almost, it almost seems like you're a psychiatrist because for a long time, I, my dirty little secret is that I am a psychiatrist. I actually, um, both of my parents are, my dad's a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, and my mother is a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. It's the family business. And when I finished medical school, I actually trained first fully in mm. psychiatry and did a year as chief resident and then, you know, did a U-turn and kind of went back and retrained. But for a long time, I actually had it, I took it off of my CV for a long time. Well, I like how you mentioned being a resident is like a professional adolescence, right? I love it. Yes, absolutely. In a lot of professions, if you kind of go back and you think about like the stages of development in the field, yeah, there are adolescent qualities. The only problem is that there are patients who are oftentimes on the receiving end of the experiments that these residents are performing. Yeah. So what happened with this book and adolescence and wildhood and all that. So Catherine and I were um, really, both of us had adolescence at the time. That was part of it. 
And we had sort of trained our ears for beliefs that XYZ is uniquely human. And it's really interesting how much of a preoccupation there is with what makes us human, what makes us unique. I mean, if you look at the subtitles of a lot of books, in the, like science books, biology books in the last like 20 years, there's a lot of that. And of course, we were feeling, yeah, everybody's been looking at what makes us unique, right? Our 200,000-year-old species that has so much biology, the vast majority of biology is shared, and we're just ignoring what's in common. And so we were reading in lots of places, adolescence is uniquely human, or that adolescence itself is the product of a post-industrial revolution. I mean, there's just all of these claims. So we got interested in that. And what we discovered was that first, the definition of adolescence isn't clear. So to your point. So for example, if you ask a neurologist, like a, like a developmental psychiatrist, they might say that adolescence goes from, the beginning is usually the onset of puberty. So that's kind of a physical mark, right? When females start to ovulate, males start to make viable spermatozoa. But from the beginning of puberty until they might say until the brain stops developing, which can be as late as the late 20s. And even in some cases, their studies suggest the early 30s. So okay, that's one definition. Then if you ask somebody who is in college, and I teach a lot of college students, do you consider yourself adolescents? They're like, no, we're young adults. Adolescents, that's high school. That's middle school and high school. If you ask the military, right, they have a different definition. I mean, it's kind of all over the place. And even at one point, the World Health Organization and the American Academy of Pediatrics, they had different definitions. So we just thought, okay, number one, we established that actually, yes, adolescence occurs across certainly vertebrates. And even we study lobsters, crayfish, and so in invertebrates. And that we decided to make the definition our own. And this was based on a number of studies that we did to figure out, like, what are the core competencies of being an adult? And we said, okay, it starts with puberty, fine. And it ends when an animal has mastered four core competencies and which are staying safe, learning to navigate social structures and hierarchies, learning to communicate sexually, not have sex, because as we say, copulation is easy, courtship is hard. And then finally learning to feed yourself and be independent. And what we discovered was in the wild, animals, juveniles who failed to achieve all four competencies, they either didn't survive or they had no reproductive fitness. But in our species, we all know people who are chronologically adult, but do not have those four competencies. So in a sense, there's a mismatch between how we're raising our kids and the environments in which they're being shaped and the biology of adolescence, which is really conserved across vertebrate species. Right. So the definition you use is really all about learning. And so that would imply that if it's a lot easier to learn these skills, then adolescence is going to be a lot shorter. Right. And so the more difficult it is to kind of figure these things out, then the longer adolescence will be. Yes. I guess I'd quibble a tiny bit with what do we call what is difficult and what is short and what is long, because when we're talking about different species, that's relative. And we have a diagram in the beginning where we sort of look at the lifespan and when adolescence starts. and But yes, it is about mastering a lot of things that have to be learned for sure. And of course, during adolescence, there's neuroplasticity, particular neuroplasticity, which is part of the reason why adolescents are so vulnerable to mental illness. We know that that's a big issue. But the reason that neuroplasticity exists, we believe, is that there is this critical learning that has to happen, and it needs to be 
like endured. I mean, endured and enduring. And actually, I'm glad I made the Freudian slip and said endured instead of enduring because one of the big insights is that it's hard. It has to be hard. For you to learn these things, there are going to be difficult, very difficult experiences. The issue, of course, in our species is that our children are, we have few children, we treasure them, we love them, and we want to protect them, even if it means they can't learn something right now. And in the wild, it's you know obviously a very different story. There are many more juveniles that are born than mature adults who live in the wild. Well, I mean, so I'm thinking in terms of safety, for instance, which is your first skill, the world is safer now than it was in the past by a dramatic margin, right? We don't have to worry about being killed by our neighbors all that much, relatively speaking, right? We don't have to worry about getting predated all that much. It's a pretty safe place. And so one would think, okay, got that thing covered. But you suggest that we just kind of move the goalposts, right? So that we can keep that energy and that kind of learning hunger going. And so with respect to that, I mean, do you think that you say that maybe there's like an auto, it's kind of like an autoimmune disease, right? Our desire to find safety since we already have it has to kind of go somewhere. And that leads to anxieties about things that probably in the grand scheme of things aren't that big of a deal. Right. So that's actually a really interesting question. And I thought you were going in a different direction. But yeah, I mean, that was an idea that we'd sort of been developing. But it's interesting that even though you're right, there aren't predators everywhere, it's still a very dangerous phase of life. So between the ages of 12 and 19, mortality rises almost six times, right? Mm. And in the U.S., a lot of that's motor vehicle accidents, it's car accidents. But there's a neurobiology of adolescence that underlies the risk-taking and the judgment errors that lead to that horrible statistic. And that neurobiology is a decreased fearfulness. Now, and, and it turns out what we learned, which is so interesting, is that decreased fearfulness in the post-juvenile, so juveniles are very scared, and then as adults, they're less scared. But during that period, that fear goes down, and there's much more with the neophilia. So you'll see when a humpback whale is found in Ventura Harbor, as happened a couple of years ago, that's an adolescent. When there are mountain lions coming down from the hills and in Santa Monica, that's an adolescent who's dispersing. So these are typically curious, less fearful animals. What is so fascinating, what was really fascinating for us is to learn three things. One is that if the the example, the first time we encountered this was up near the Monterey Bay Aquarium, where there's a coastal region where there's a great density of great white sharks, I think second only to the Great Barrier Reef up in California. And there are sea lions that are in these coves, but that the sea lion, the only sea lions who ever swim into this area where there's a lot of sharks that the wildlife biologists call the triangle of death, the only ones are the adolescents and particularly the adolescent males. And we also learned that a wide range of adolescent animals in different species will do this thing called predator inspection, Mm -hmm. where typically with another animal or multiple other animals, they will move towards their predator. Like literally, I have video, there's cheetahs, there are three or four cheetahs, and then you see these Thompson gazelles, and they're moving forward toward and then looking and smelling, and then they run away. Mm. So we found it in bats, we found it in guppies, we found it in, in all of these. What's interesting about this is that clearly it's a learning behavior. They are learning about the things that are gonna be most dangerous for them, 
there's evidence that it really does keep them safer as adults. But what's relevant to modern human adolescence and just blew me away is that we realize that they are willing to do this when they're with others. They don't do it alone. So when an adolescent animal is with its peers, the fear goes down. So it's not a matter of just showing off and signaling that they are somehow braver. It's a process of learning. I mean, you use this term uh, island tameness. And, and I love, I'm going to start using that with my students in my class because you say that kind of we're all humans now subject to, well, not all, but certainly in, in most of America, we have this island tameness where it's not only that we don't have to fear predators, but we pretty much don't have to fear being murdered by our conspecifics. And we don't really have to fear all sorts of environmental hazards like we used to in the past. But you say that if you don't seek out danger as an adolescent, then you will be in more danger later in life. Is this analogous to kind of sharpening the immune system, right? A lot of parents shelter their kids from infectious agents and then they their immune systems are more vulnerable later in life, right? Yeah, I love that question and that analogy. Let me just circle back to one point that I wanted to make is that, you know, when kids get their driver's licenses at whatever in California, I think 15, 15 and a half, that's when they finally get their license at 16, they still can't drive with their peers for mm. like a year. Oh, I mean, you're not allowed to have another kid in the car? I think unless there's an adult in the car, mm. they can't have your... You can't, and the reason for that is that statistically, they're much more likely to have an accident if they have a peer and no adult. And so Catherine and I, when we learned about predator inspection and the fact that the fear level goes down when these pretty wide range of animals, I mean, from bats to antelope, when they're with their peers, we really wonder, and I think it's a pretty damn good hypothesis, that the neurobiology that we see at work with kids and their peers may be part of an ancient sort of predator inspection legacy. So that's just one point I'd want to make. In terms of the, you need to encounter danger. Yeah. I mean, the wild animals do. I mean, they Either they have to learn directly through a near-miss experience, which is a pretty risky way to learn, but it is pretty effective. The other way they can learn is by being with conspecifics who actually have knowledge about the predators. So it's very interesting that if an adolescent animal, if a fish, there's, I forget the species where they've looked at this, if one or two of the fish have gone out and have learned about predators and have come back, even the fish that didn't go on the foray, by hanging out with those fish that have, they actually are safer. They learn something about the danger. But it's interesting, you know, it's complicated because we want to protect our kids. And I remember when my son was learning to drive and he wanted constantly wanted to drive. I mean, it was raining and storming. And I was sort of taught, if you don't have to drive when it's storming, don't. And so I was like, no, Charlie, let's not do it. It's Let's wait till it clears up. And then thinking about, as I was writing this book, thinking probably I'm an experienced driver, it probably been a really good idea to drive in this really dangerous situation with him where I could give him some tips and all that. But there you go. Yeah. I mean, I was having a conversation with Gene Twangy recently about intergenerational differences and how Gen X, right? These kids were, you know, were running around the neighborhood as five-year-olds crossing the street and so forth and climbing trees and kids are not doing that generally now. And so the question is, does that make them more kind of I don't know, brittle later in life or less resilient. But aren't there ways that we as humans can do this virtually? You said that one of the reasons why we might want to go see horror films is sort of a way of getting some of the benefits of 
predator inspection without having to run the risks. I mean, can't we just simulate this? Isn't that a better and safer way to do it now? Yeah, probably we can simulate some of it. Although I think some of the neurobiology of learning is that intense catecholamine. I mean, that when you're scared, it's almost like it it really imprints it when the adrenaline is just surging through your veins. And I'm not sure you get the same thing when you're in a simulation. The horror movie was a little bit different. What we were interested in is we found that the demographics of horror movie going, it's like almost completely adolescents and that expanded through their 20s. And that we thought was sort of a provocative fact. And we hypothesized that maybe some of that is that sort of ancient neurobiology being drawn to something very dangerous and awful. It's a hypothesis, but we had a lot of fun coming up with those. But the danger piece, it's also interesting because you can't learn to be safe unless you know about danger. But in the wild, animals who are inexperienced, it's so we did what's called a systematic review, which is something that I used to do in medicine, but I sort of brought that methodology across the disciplinary wall into this domain. And what I wanted to know and what we wanted to know is, okay, we know in humans that adolescence is the most dangerous phase of life, right? So is that true in other species? As a simple question. And so we looked across the different vertebrate taxa and we found that, yes, indeed, animals who are leaving home, so fledgling birds, yearling, deer, smolt, I mean, all of these age-specific animals. So they exited juvenile and now they are leaving the protection of parents, essentially. They're leaving the environment in which parents are protecting them and providing for them, but they're inexperienced. So that it's like a very dangerous combination that you are newly unprotected, but you lack experience and you are easy prey. And it turns out the mortality, for example, penguins, we looked at Gentoo penguins, Adelie penguins, a number of species where it's been looked at through tracking. That first season, the mortality can be high. Seven out of 10 may not survive. But if you survive that first year, then your mortality is in half the next year. So there's this kind of exponential learning curve that you become safer and safer. And the same thing is true for a lot of other species of birds. Yearlings are often protected from hunters because they are predator naive is what, what they call it. And actually, it's not a bad thing to remember that there are actual species of predators, a number of them, bigs, the B-I-G-G-S killer whales, for example, that literally specialize. They are specialized feeders on adolescent animals. Mm -hmm. And they specialize them because, you know, it's a better uh, return on investment. You're much more likely to get them because they are predator naive. They're easy prey. Well, yeah. I mean, certainly if you're trying to suck somebody into a crypto scam, someone in their early 20s is probably the prime target, right? As long as they have some money. Yeah. And we were you know, thinking kind of the metaphorical kind of concept of adolescence. It's interesting because when we think about in the world of cyber, if we even call it that, I remember when we used the term cyber, one of our adolescents reprimanded us for being like so out of it. So forgive me, I'm not sure what the term du jour is, but the idea that younger people really kind of colonized cyberspace in the sense, and that in, if you're not of that generation, then that is a kind of an unprecedented, a sort of, sort of a parental mismatch, because traditionally the parent is familiar with the environment and can offer insights about how to keep yourself safe, but this is the opposite. Although there's also a parallel in nature, which is as climate change, you know, as new landforms are emerging, they are being colonized primarily by adolescent penguins, which is, you know, anyway, there's lots of interesting parallels. Well, you also have the section on status, and it seems like 
many of the threats that people are subject to now are more social in nature. And certainly a lot of the mental illness that we see in adolescence is driven by their peers to some extent, right? And so here again, we have a bit of a mismatch. You talked about how social media has maybe made adolescence more difficult because navigating status hierarchies is more difficult. Yeah. I mean, really the point we were making, we were trying to kind of make sense. How could we use animal knowledge to understand the, the difficult aspect of human adolescence? And one of the issues is depression, anxiety, and that's increasing. And obviously there is a temporal connection with social media and all that. So those connections are there. What we were trying to do is kind of come up with a, an evolutionary comparative explanation. And what's fascinating is that the part of the brain that is, there's basically a social brain network, which is concerned with determining where you are kind of rank-wise compared to your peers, and then adjusting your behavior, if possible, to cause yourself to rise in status, which makes sense because the higher you are in status in a group, the more resources, you have more food, you can occupy a more protected place inside the flock or the, I mean, it's a, it's better for your fitness. And loss of status is fatal in, in, in many species, right? Well, exactly. If you tumble in status, we call it status descent. What happens is, yes, you are unprotected. Your immune system is worse. Your amount of food is worse. I mean, all kinds of things. So you don't want that to happen. Okay. But it turns out that when the brain changes, the neurobiology of an animal who falls in status or rises in status changes in a very similar way, whether you're, and we looked in fish, in, in crustaceans, fish, we looked in anoles, in lizards, birds, and mammals. And what is fascinating about it is that if you look at status descent, you can't ask an animal what they feel like, but the way they behave when they fall in status is that they don't move as much. They are, they withdraw in case of fish to the corner of the tank. They are slowed in everything. They're eating less. And that is very similar picture to what we see in adolescents and even adults who have bad depression. They have these neurovegetative symptoms. And interestingly, in the fish experiments, when they force a fish down the status ladder, and then they put SSRIs, Prozac-like drugs, into the water, which modifies their brain chemistry, the fish actually start to behave in a different way. Now, they're not being cured of depression, but it's just interesting. And the point of all of this is to say that as we try to understand why adolescents are having so many issues with anxiety and depression, it can be useful to look at that ancient biology and how fundamental status is. I have to say that I didn't know this until writing this book. And when I look back at some of the mistakes I you know, as a parent, you look back and you say, oh, well, I wish I hadn't said that. Or I wish one of the things that I wish that I'd been more sensitive to is that I remember saying things like, why do you care what she thinks? Like, what are they to you? And it was really not very, in retrospect, informed at all about how powerfully she was feeling what she was feeling socially and from a status perspective. Yeah. I mean, animal behavioralists will rarely say that fish is depressed, right? But maybe they need to start using that language, right? When they describe what's happening socially to those creatures. Yeah, they don't use it. You know, it's funny. I did an interview last week and I was talking about developmental homology, which is a very wonky way of talking about the fact that in the same stage of life, developmental, animals will have very similar brain biology. So, and the brain biology of an adolescent fish and an adolescent bird and an adolescent mammal, there is developmental homology. 
And she said, well, I don't want to anthropomorphize here. And so I was gentle about it, I think. But if you kind of look, as I mentioned before, if you think about this fear of anthropomorphizing. Anthropo-denial, right, is the term. Yeah. It's phylogenetically completely inverted, right? If you see a behavior in a human and a non-human animal, right, that seems similar, if you have to come up with a hypothesis, is it better to come up with a hypothesis assuming difference or assuming similar brain biology? And we have most people, including me, were taught like as an orthodoxy to not like the first principle of science is one of them is don't anthropomorphize. But I actually think that is the product of human exceptionalism, which needs to be reexamined. But so anyway, the point is that fish depressed, I don't know, because they can't, I don't talk fish. But I do know that the neurobiology of that fish who's been pushed down the status ladder looks a heck of a lot like the neurobiology of depressed adolescent. Now, the fourth skill that every person has to develop, every animal has to develop, is this one of self-reliance. And I think that there's some interesting insights in your book about this, right? Because parents all want to get their kids in a position where they can be independent. And presumably you can push them out of the nest too early, but you can also kind of push them out of the nest too late. So what kind of insights can we get from the animal kingdom about the optimal way to kind of get our children out the door? Yeah, the number one lesson that I learned from that entire section and all that research was flexibility. And somehow I had, despite all of the years of sort of looking at animals and animal behavior and all this stuff, I still had this idea that in the wild animals, they left the nest and that was it. And in fact, that is not the case. There are two surprises. One is that there's something called extended parental care, which some animal parents can do in their number of species we mentioned in the book. Again, it's one of the penguin species where the offspring will fledge, so they'll go off. But if they are, first of all, if the environment doesn't have enough food in it or is too densely filled with predators. So the environment changes, right? And that particular individual doesn't have the skills to hunt yet, and they can come back and they can be fed for a period of time and cared for. That's extended parental care, and there's flexibility. And they may extend that to some offspring and not others. And there's evidence that animal parents do adjust the way that they parent based on some feedback that's coming from that individual offspring, which again, I don't know why I'm surprised by that, but honestly, I was. So again, it was, I guess, my own residual human exceptionalism. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it was that there are a lot of styles of becoming independent and it doesn't always require leaving home. And that actually, you know, there are two different strategies that are used by, I mean, many birds, but it's seen in other species as well, which is remaining in the nest and helping future generations of offspring and parents or dispersing. And there are a lot of factors that can shape that. One of the most interesting kind of human connections to all of this was sort of examining my own assumptions. When I was growing up, there was this idea, well, you, if you'd been raised right or if you were whatever together, you left home after high school, you went to college, and then you went on, you got some training, whatever, you got a job, and then you had your own place and you weren't moving back home. That was very, very unique to a specific time and place though, right? Exactly. That's the point. That was like the economy was just so, and you could get it. Yeah. It, but at the time... I didn't have that perspective. But a bunch of stuff has changed, starting with the economy, since I'm talking to an economist. And actually, as the U.S., as we have a much more multicultural world, 
we have people coming from other parts of the world where the expectation is different, where you don't physically disperse. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't become independent in other ways, but that actually has got me thinking more and more about the different ways in which you can become independent. And it doesn't, both in physical adolescence at the end and in general, it doesn't require physical leaving. And it's more of your capacity, your capability, your personal development. Now, there's one thing that you mentioned in the Zubiquity book. It was this phenomenon called capture myopathy. And I found this fascinating. It's kind of hard to understand. It's kind of like shock, right? So shock is another thing that I find difficult to understand, right? Why would your body essentially flood itself with chemicals that are going to kill you when you need a very different response, right? So how does capture myopathy work? And are there similarities in kind of non-extreme circumstances where fear can impact your health in a very negative way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great that you brought that up because this is a podcast about being between disciplines, you know, and I, I love this whole kind of siloed, challenging silos. So there's a human condition, a cardiac condition, which is called stress cardiomyopathy. It actually, most cardiologists use its this term, it's a Japanese term, takatsubo, which is a term that Japanese cardiologists who really spotted this disorder around 1999 to 2000. Is that related to, so you mentioned broken heart syndrome as well, right? But that's less fear and more, I guess, despair. It's the idea that something is happening in the external world that's causing your body, no, no one's physically touching you, but your body, you are secreting a huge amount of adrenaline, norepinephrine, you're right. So whether it's witnessing a loved one die or it's a 9-11, and each of these examples, earthquakes, tornadoes, natural terrorist events, all of these are external events that are causing an internal reaction characterized by high levels of catecholamines, adrenaline, et cetera. And so there's this human condition that Japanese cardiologists spotted and named in around 2000, where particularly older women, for reasons we don't fully understand, when they experience something upsetting, hearing news of a loved one dying, et cetera, they would have chest pain. They would have EKG changes that looked somewhat like a traditional heart attack where the arteries blocked, but they were taken to the emergency room and to a cath lab, which is where we do angiograms. And the coronary arteries were not blocked. In a heart attack, you'd expect a block, but they were open. But when they put dye into the ventricle, which is the pumping chamber of the heart, it had a funky shape to it. It was kind of bulging out of the apex. And it looked to them like the pot that Japanese octopus fishermen used to capture the octopus called the Takotsubo. So everybody calls it Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. All right. So I was already a young cardiologist when this was coming up. It was interesting and we were kind of on the lookout for it. So then I'm having this ubiquitous journey, you know, starting in the mid to late 2000s. And one day I'm at the zoo and helping with a tamarind monkey who they think has a cardiac issue. And one of the vets was concerned that I might be scaring the animal because I was making very intense eye contact, which was actually an effort to connect, which is what I would do on the human side. And then they use this term, oh, you know, animals who are frightened can develop something called capture myopathy. Now, I don't want to oversimplify capture myopathy because it is a big series of, it's a little bit of a garbage bag term, but at its core, a piece of it is fear leading to physiologic changes in the animal that in some cases can cause death. And again, sometimes they're being chased and their muscle can break down. So I started thinking about that and thinking, to your point, like from an evolutionary perspective, 
why is it that humans are vulnerable to this form of heart failure that in about 5% of the time can kill them? Why are animals vulnerable to dying from something that their body is doing to themselves? Like, it's not like they're being punched or they're being, this is actually a, this is a something that the body is doing. And the answer, I believe, has to do with what Randy Nessie calls the smoke detector principle, which is if the physiology of the body is going to be calibrated in one way or another, that it's better to be calibrated towards an over-response than an under-response. And that when you are in a dangerous situation and you need to flee, having your skeletal muscle just sort of bathed in adrenaline and epinephrine is actually advantageous. The problem, of course, is that in some cases, there's going to be an overshoot. So there's a kind of, again, this is less of a scientific explanation, sort of more of a metaphorical explanation. But I think that evolution has shaped the phenotype of the nervous system of these animals in a way that if they need that surge of catecholamines, it's there. But recognizing that in some individuals, not all, but in some individuals, that may tip them over into a really dangerous situation. Well, last question. Towards the end of the book's ubiquity, you recount this story around a West Nile virus, right, where the CDC had to acknowledge that there was something they could learn from, from veterinarians and folks who studied other creatures. And I think that this was written before COVID. Do you think that at least in, in the area of infectious diseases, the barriers have dropped and that other areas of medicine can learn from this? Do you think that's a sort of a, a sign of things to come? Yeah, absolutely. So for sure, COVID has sort of heightened awareness that most of the emerging infections affecting human populations are coming from animal populations. So before COVID, it was West Nile and Ebola and Nipah virus and SARS and all of that. So yes, for sure, that has, I mean, sadly, but it has reduced barriers between human and human medicine. However, I think there's still the problem is that if you ask physicians today, what is the connection between human and animal medicine, they'll say infection, they'll say what are called zoonoses, and what they'll leave out are the connections around heart disease and psychiatry, which is mental health, which is one of my primary focuses now, and female health, right? I've been looking at ovarian cancer and breast cancer and postpartum depression. So there are lots and lots of connections that are not zoonoses. However, I think COVID has definitely woken people up to, number one, veterinary research and how valuable veterinarians are as our partners. But the next step is to continue to remove that blindfold of human exceptionalism that continues to be a blind spot for physicians, and including not just physicians, everyone, psychologists, dentists, and patients themselves. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. I enjoyed both books. The most recent one is called Wildhood, all about adolescence, and the other one is called Zubiquity. Thanks so much. Hope to talk again soon. And it was a great pleasure. Talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.